Welcome to Week in Review, where we recap events and issues pertinent to Central Illinois. I'm WMBD News reporter Will Stevenson. First up, the big news that could be putting the legal system on the local level in the state of Illinois into a tailspin. A judge in Kankakee County this past week ruled that the newly reviewed cashless bail provisions to the State Safety Act have been ruled unconstitutional. This after 64 Illinois counties filed lawsuits to that end, and the state consolidated them into one, assigning it to Kankakee County. Some counties say they are implementing the cashless bail provisions anyway, siding with State Attorney General Kwame Raoul, who says the ruling only applies to the counties that filed suit. Others, including Peoria County State's Attorney Jody Hoos, say that because it's been declared unconstitutional, they can't implement it. In other words, pre-trial release in Peoria is status quo. We tried to contact Hoos for further comment. She did not return our messages. But at the state capitol, Illinois House Minority Leader Jim Durkin and Republican State Representative Patrick Windhorst of Metropolis shared their reactions and agree that confusion reigns. Last night's decision is a victory for the citizens of Illinois and specifically victims of crime and the men and women of law enforcement. We warned about the consequences of the legislation from the beginning. Now the Illinois Democrats, the governor, the president of the Senate, and the speaker of the House are feeling the consequences of how they formulated and passed this legislation. After four attempts to fix this misguided and confusing scheme and a strong rebuke by the circuit court, we have an opinion that we have to now decide how it's going to work and how this is going to be applied statewide. My recommendation is that we have we have both parties, the, uh, the prosecutors and also the state, seek a stay of the implementation of the Pretrial Fairness Act section of the Safety Act to the Supreme Court and negotiate in good faith to find a fair and reasonable cash reform bill or I would ask that both parties, the plaintiff, the the prosecution, and also uh, the governor, the the speaker, and the president, to stay the implementation of this act while this matter is under appeal. We have 54 counties that are affected by this. And we now will have, if nothing is done between now and January 1st, there will be unequal application of this law throughout the state of Illinois. That is not right. It's not responsible. So I'm I'm ready to now pass it over to uh, my colleague, Pat Windhorst. Thank you, Leader Durkin. I'm Patrick Windhorst, State Representative of the 118th District. And I also would like to join with Leader Durkin in applauding uh, last night's uh, decision out of Kankakee County. Last night's uh, decision validated many of the arguments that myself and others have been making over the last two years regarding the constitutionality of the Pretrial Fairness Act portion of the Safety Act. I'd also like to thank the bipartisan group of state's attorneys and sheriffs who came together uh, and each filed these uh, lawsuits uh, to bring this effort forward and to make sure that last night's opinion was possible. The the court and its ruling made clear the ability for a court uh, to set monetary bail is inherent in the judicial power of the court and is provided by the state constitution. That is something many of you here have heard us uh, discuss over the last two years. In order for that uh, inherent power of the court to be amended or taken away, it must come through the proper process, which is amending the Constitution rather than legislation. As the court made clear, bail is the middle ground 
to strike a balance between the defendant's right to potential release prior to trial, as well as the requirements of the criminal justice system to assure the defendant's presence at trial and for the protection of the public. The Safety Act, as we have said, limits judicial discretion by eliminating cash bail, and this opinion makes that clear. So we are here now with potential chaos uh, that may ensue beginning January 1. We will have counties throughout the state which will have a cash bail system and counties throughout the state which will potentially not have the cash bail system or it will be eliminated. We will also see after January 1st, uh, defendants who are held without cash bail appealing those decisions and those appeals will work their way through the appellate court system. This was avoidable. Myself and others during the lame duck session, I'm sorry, during the veto session had argued that the pretrial fairness portion of this act should be delayed pending this ruling and pending appeal uh, to the Illinois State Supreme Court potentially. Instead of doing that, we will now have chaos beginning January 1st throughout the state. Unfortunately, this is going to occur, but it was avoidable. Our first question is from Dave Dahl. Dave asks, the governor talks about the single mom who shoplifts diapers and spends months in jail. Does she exist? And what about that really bad guy who has access to money? Does he exist too? Look, sure. Uh, let me answer that and I'll let Pat uh, follow up with that. But uh, that is a, this issue of this single mom with the, uh, who's being held for stealing diapers is a myth. Cook County Jail is at its lowest, uh, uh, I would say, head, head count in, in years, if not decades. People who are charged with either misdemeanors, class three or class four felonies are not being held. And even in Cook County, you have over 100 defendants who are walking out of the jail on with ankle bracelets uh, through electronic monitoring. So uh, I find that uh, that is a, a narrative that is false. Is something that is playing to the heartstrings of individuals, but it just doesn't occur. I'd like to find out who that person is and when this happened and where it occurred, but it's not going to happen in Cook County. It's not going to happen in any of the courts in Illinois for somebody in that situation. And yes, there are situations where street gangs are able to uh, post cash to be able to uh, put take people out of custody, but it is not a, a, a common experience. We see more people right now in Cook County who are being released because of the uh, bail reform light that was done five years ago by the chief judge, where most people are now out on bail with uh, electronic monitoring. And those are people who are charged with ser very serious offenses. So uh, I will say that this is all propositioned on a, not on fact or reality of people who are languishing within the county jails waiting trial for minor crimes. This is just part of a national progressive movement on criminal justice reform. And it doesn't work. And it doesn't and it shouldn't work in Illinois because we do have we, we have changed the the attitudes within the courts over many years. And so have the judges. So this is unnecessary. We need to be able to keep allow the courts to continue to make judgment calls on individuals who have been charged with crimes of whether or not uh, based on the, the facts, uh, the implications to the victim and also the consequences to the communities of whether or not. A bail can be sent, whether it's a recognizance bond, bond, which is something the courts can do right now, which is no, which you don't have to put cash up, or there is going to be a no bail. So we should allow that discretion. And that's what the court has said, that this is an inherent responsibility of the circuit court to make these judgment calls. It's not the legislature. And the legislature crossed the line in this particular law. Okay, thank you. Our next question comes from John O'Connor at 
the Associated Press, what is the effect now? Is this like the COVID mask case where there was confusion about whether it applied statewide? What do you make of the Attorney General saying it's effective statewide regardless? I'd let Pat uh, answer that one. Well, I, my understanding is that the, those counties that were involved in the lawsuit who obtained uh, this ruling are the ones affected by the lawsuit. Those uh, counties that are not uh, would still fall under the, the safety act that will go, the full portions of it that will go into effect on January 1st. As uh, Leader Durkin has stated previously, that's why we need the parties to come together to make this statewide, to ask the Supreme Court to make it statewide, and why prior uh, to this date, the legislature should have acted to delay implementation to allow the courts uh, to have a complete ruling. I think it's also just fair to note that the court only took up one portion of the Safety Act, and that's pretrial fairness. Every other aspect of it were not challenged. So those, uh, whether it's the um, having a trial date set within 90 days or allowing for anonymous complaints, those are all going into effect on January 1st. So uh, maybe the attorney generals are referencing that, but it was only one section of this 760-page bill that was dropped on us two years ago that has been ruled unconstitutional. Let's get some analysis now on how the area is doing with COVID-19, along with the flu and the RSV making their presence known as well. As has been the case on a weekly basis, WMBD's Greg Batten and Dan DiOrio talked recently with Dr. Doug Casper of the University of Illinois College of Medicine in Peoria. China approached COVID so much differently than most of the rest of the world. There was an idea of trying to keep COVID or control COVID down to a zero case policy, which is, has not been um, successful by really any way. And so um, their population is just more naive with um, experience with COVID, and that includes both uh, vaccination as we know it, which would be mRNA vaccination and natural infection. And so their numbers are much more prone to wide uh, variation, which means really high case spikes. And certainly in their older population, they will see uh, more severe outcomes. And so what that does for the rest of the world is it serves as, as the kind of telltale sign of if there is a change in COVID strain, uh, what becomes a new dominant strain, will that be significant uh, in other populations, meaning people that vaccinated and boosted a natural infection and whatever the combination that we have in our country, do we expect to see that anything that comes out of China will change things? And right now, there are some signs that the, the strain will change. Uh, we've talked about you know, all so many different strains to date. But if that plays out as any different, isn't isn't really clear at all at this point. You know, when COVID first came, there are some people who felt that uh, it, it happened way back in December. We didn't recognize it till January. And we kind of played catch up. Now that we're very aware of COVID and the possible origins, some believe were in China. Do we have? Uh, I, I don't know. I don't know how to say this. People on the ground watching there in China to pick up any variant, so we're ready. You know, I'm not sure that in the prior years uh, before COVID began, there was a some information sharing that came out of uh, similar agencies across the world. And some of that it, it was stopped due to political reasons that had nothing to do with you know, pre-COVID times. 
there was a lot of information sharing now that goes into banking these genetic sequences of COVID and tracking them real time. And there's certainly much more information about strains from different labs across the world. But, you know, actual metrics as far as uh, outcomes by age group and true numbers that reflect hospitalization and death are not uh, widely available. I mean, if anything, they're much more reactive where we wait until the hospitals, you know, at least locally, kind of um, we, we track when they get full and then we get a little bit more um, concerned. But no, I, you know, I don't know. Um, the hope was is that a worldwide network would emerge from this, but I don't think that we're anywhere near that as something that's like a real-time functional agency. Here we are on December 27th when we're having this conversation. And normally this would be uh, getting ready. All right, here we go. The flu season's coming. But it's already started a long time ago. And now that we gathered over the last couple of weeks or week, it's likely to spike up again, right? So flu actually, hopefully, so right, the, the week between Christmas and New Year's and forward, there's not a lot of updating of information. Even the CDC main trackers uh, take this period off until okay. January 3rd to provide updates. But anecdotally, what has been seen in a few regions is that numbers have plateaued. And the same thing, RSV has been in a consistent downtrend for about a month now. The hope is, is that flu might be hitting plateau in many areas. You know, we are so primed to worry about case increases that with more seasons that pass, there likely will be some um, some yearly sequences that emerge where potentially things become a little more predictable about cases and we alter maybe a little bit about our strategies of vaccination. Um, you know, we always are looking for numbers and making sure that things aren't going out of control, but some of this is a natural process, meaning that infection raises by the number of people that can become infected and when that hits a certain plateau it will come down and so we you know we reassure everybody as well that this isn't uh, an indefinite sequence the numbers won't continue to rise forever uh, and hopefully we're in the beginning phase where maybe we are coming down uh, over a predicted pattern you know uh, we haven't and one day we want to get an extensive conversation, maybe do it on a podcast after the show with you, about your immune system. But the holidays, we beat up on ourselves. Don't get enough sleep, eat too much, drink too much, which makes us vulnerable. If we're concerned about all this, what can we do best for our immune system? Yeah, it's it's actually a very um, it's a very interesting concept that is likely going to be the future of medicine in so many different ways. Um, there are so many different avenues to look at immunotherapies and immune-derived vaccination that are really individualized. You know, a key article which um, when we read these things, we almost sometimes think, man, do we even really need to study this? But even within the last week or so, showing that uh, individuals who regularly exercise had overwhelmingly better outcomes with COVID infection uh, than individuals that are are mostly sedentary um, has kind of been making the rounds in the last week or two. And so at this time of year, it's very hard to get outside. It's cold, it's icy. Uh, Anything that people can do to remain active uh, and have control over their, you know, helps control over their stress in their life, helps control over their 
eating habits, frames their day for getting all their activities done seems to be the most basic thing that continues to show to be very helpful, uh, even with dealing with COVID infection. You know, you talk about going forward. Uh, one of our listeners was listening to back to the best of Greg and Dan and heard we, me mention Dr. Veter, um, the cancer doctor, and he remembers years ago Dr. Veter just beating his head against the wall about people with cancer and how they don't take care of themselves at lead and, and how you treat it. And he said in, in a conversation he heard, Dr. Veter was turning towards gene therapy as the cure. I, have you, I think you have mentioned that. Well, could that be the future? Oh, it's here now. Yeah, this is part of therapy of how we approach breast cancer. This is part of therapy that you see on um, TV with these commercials for other conditions, uh, cancer conditions, that even five, seven years ago, there was no reliable treatment. And now there are an emerging field of immunotherapies um, that are largely based off of genetics, uh, genetic uh, presentations of different uh, cancer illnesses. And this field will only expand more and more. The prior era of chemotherapies, which was very toxic, very difficult on the patient, um, if we can move away from that and get into more of immunotherapy, is, is far more desirable. One last one, Dr. Casper. Anecdotally, there are about 80 children in Ohio. There is a measles outbreak. And the whole conversation around vaccines has gotten so complicated because there was a resistance by some during COVID. And there's always been a pocket of people who didn't want their children vaccinated. When, 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 you, when we have those little outbreaks, and I say little, 80 seems like a lot to me, of measles, which for the most part, I don't ever hear anybody having measles. When we see that, uh, does that cause concern or is it just a natural flow of things? No, it's, that's very concerning. Um, there are a variety of diseases that uh, generations don't know anymore. Polio, smallpox, uh, measles. These are things that um, childhood vaccinations have largely eradicated uh, from our communities. And some of it is just this uh, bias of time where uh, younger individuals don't remember meeting people with these conditions. They don't remember that they were, they were ill and they had lifelong lasting outcomes. And so a lot of this is a communication issue, meaning that the family with a medical professional discussing the benefits and the risk to their child can go a very long way towards taking care of this. But these are conditions that we don't need to be discussing. These are widely could be almost eradicated by uh, regular vaccine. Illinois lawmakers in the last year passed legislation capping interest rates that payday lenders and car title loan companies charge at no more than 36%. But there was a loophole thanks to a court decision in Springfield that excluded pawnbrokers. But Senator Jacqueline Collins of Chicago now has introduced legislation to fill that loophole. We're here today to make not only a moral argument but also an economic argument. And as you can see behind me, and we're going to introduce the uh, gathering behind me, this is an interdenominational issue. So we have representatives of all the various religious groups behind me. Uh, this is my last holiday season as a state senator. And looking back, it is both remarkable and sad 
how often I have had predatory lending on my mind at this time of year. For nearly 20 years, we've been hearing predatory lenders talk about how consumers need them, how capping interest rates will cause credit to disappear, and no one else but them can help the consumer. We're here today to call upon people of faith, including my colleagues in the legislature, to defend the state's 36% rate cap. The cap, known as the Predatory Loan Prevention Act, or PLPA, was a cornerstone of the Legislative Black Caucus's economic access pillar, which was unveiled in 2020 in response to major events that cast a bright light on systemic racism in our country and state. Among these major events were the murder of George Floyd, the Black Lives Movement, and COVID-related disparities, including higher infection rates and death in black communities. The pawnbrokers would have you believe they are under attack. But in fact, the opposite is true. If we fail to close the loophole that allows pawnbrokers to charge 240% APR, at least two things will happen. First, the people who were once vulnerable to payday lenders will become targets of the pawnbrokers. When Ohio put a cap on payday loans, the pawn industry grew 97%. The second thing that would happen is that it would open the floodgates for other predatory lenders who would come to the legislature asking for a carve out. And who could blame them? We should, or why should a pawnbroker get to charge 240% APR while an installment lender is limited to 36%? Pawnbrokers want you to think they're different from the payday lenders. But pawnbrokers, like payday lenders, make a living draining money from people who are struggling. Pawn loan interest rates are comparable to payday lending rates, loan rates. Capping the interest rates on pawn loans at 36% will mean that money currently going into the pawnbroker's pockets now instead will remain in the customer's or the consumer pockets. Research shows that putting money in consumer pockets is good for the community and local economies. It creates jobs and reduces the need for emergency cash. Here's the bottom line. The PLPA is working. Again, the bottom line, the PLPA is working. The pawnbrokers have been allowed to evade it for over a year and a half. This bill will fulfill the original intent of the PLPA to cover all forms of predatory lending and we look forward to the support of my legislative uh, colleagues, as well as the community of faith. Thank you. Thank you, Assistant Majority Leader Collins. We, we are joined here today by leaders of the faith community who are required every day to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly. And in my case, two out of three ain't bad, <laughs> but thank God for them. First, let me bring up a good friend of mine from the Archdiocese of Chicago, Father Larry Dowling. Father? Thank you very much. Father Larry Dowling, pastor of St. Agatha, St. Martyrs Parish on the west side of Chicago. Um, I have witnessed the effects of 
the uh, predatory lending uh, many, many times uh, in my parish, in my community. Uh, people have approached me to uh, help them pay off uh, these exorbitant loans. Um, and, uh, and so this is a, something near and dear to my heart. And in the spirit of Monsignor Egan, who uh, was one of my, one of my heroes, um, I just want to say very clearly that this loophole needs to be closed. Um, there are way too many people taking advantage of the poor already in our society, way too many. And we need to continue to close not only this loophole, but all of those loopholes that you know, continue to, you know, to criticize you know, uh, basic welfare and not, in turn, criticize corporate welfare. Uh, we need to continue to focus on the tenets of our faith, what call us to fairness and justice and fair treatment. Uh, and um, you know, when we talk about violence in our communities, oftentimes we focus on physical violence, but this is a violence that is done to families uh, that can be divisive, can, you know, can tear uh, families apart, uh, and it is a, an issue that is near and dear to the heart of the Christian me message. Pope, Benedict, Pope um, Emeritus Benedict XVI has said the vulnerable should be protected from the risk of usury and from despair. And Pope Francis as well has said when a family has nothing to eat because it has to make payments to those who abuse them through predatory lending, this is not Christian. In fact, it is not human to do so. And so we stand with these religious leaders, we stand with the poor especially, uh, who need this loophole closed. And representing the Archdiocese of Chicago, I call for uh, the, the state to close this loophole so that indeed we may continue to close all of those loopholes in our systems, uh, in our systemic racism uh, that uh, continue to inflict uh, poverty, violence on the poor, on the bodies and minds and spirits of those in our communities. Thank you. There are some two high-ranking elected officials who want to convey their regrets of not being able to be here, but they have offered statements in support. The first is from Mayor Lori Lightfoot. She says, the exorbitant interest rates charged by pawnbrokers are unjust and exploit financially vulnerable Chicagoans who may have no other option to make ends meet. As mayor, I have made it a priority to crack down on unjust business practices like these, as well as to reform the city of Chicago's fine and fee practices with assistance programs like the Clear Path Relief for Vehicle Stickers, Utility Building Relief for Water and Sewer Bills, and more. I urge leaders in Springfield to implement these interest rates cap for pawnbrokers as another step toward lessening the economic hardships facing our residents. And from Cook County Board President Tony Preckwinkle, she says, we are all aware that predatory lending can have devastating impact on communities of color. The time to act to close the pawnbroker loophole is now always straight and to the point. Over 20 years, uh, we've listened to the same arguments that were once used by the payday lenders that are now being used by the pawnbroker lenders about capping their loans. Y'all gonna put us out of business. Y'all hurting the people y'all trying to help. Who else is gonna help these people? Let the buyer beware. Well, let's be clear. Since we've capped loans at 36%, the Illinois Department of Financial and Professional Regulation has granted hundreds of new lending licenses, so lenders are not leaving they're coming. And as far as the pawnbrokers are concerned, not being able to make money on their loans, look, the average 30-day loan is rolled over an average of two times, turning a 30-day loan 
into a 90-day loan, trapping their borrowers into an endless cycle of debt. And besides, if the customer defaults, the pawnbroker can easily turn the pawn item into collateral as an inventory for a sale. So capping pawnbroker loans at 36% will save consumers millions of dollars in fees for 80 years from 1909 to 1991 before the law was passed to eliminate interest caps, all pawnbrokers operated with a cap of 36%. What that means is more money in consumers' pockets, less money in the pawnbrokers' pockets, bankruptcies will go down, savings will go up, in other words, less de debt devastation and more asset accumulation. My name is William McNary. I am the co-director of Citizen Action, Illinois. That does it for this edition of Week in Review. Join us at this time next week on this Midwest Communications station for another recap of some of the biggest issues and events in central Illinois. Have a happy new year. I'm Will Stevenson, WMBD News.